occasionally I think about it, you know, it's strange in English how we give these names to the days of the week. For example, today is the day of the sun god. It comes from Norse mythology, but it was taken up into English, and so Monday is the day of the moon god, and Tuesday is the day of the juice, Woden, Wednesday, Thor, Thursday, Frigga, goddess, on Friday, Saturday, is named after Saturn, and then Sunday. As some of you know, we actually lived in Brazil for a number of years, and there they name their days of the week quite differently. They, five of the days are named after street markets or fairs. For example, Monday is Segunda Feira, that means second fair. And so you go through Segunda, Terça, Quarta, Quinta, Sexta Feira, and Sexta Feira is Friday. So it's named after street markets, and you come to Saturday, and it's the Sabbath, Sabado. And when you come to Sunday, it's Domingo, which means the Lord's. And to me, that makes a much better idea of the thing. And today is the Lord's Day. Isn't it great to be with God's people? I mean, it's just great. And thank you for the opportunity and invitation to be with you today. I'd just like to mention something that may be of interest and certainly of importance to some people that are here, and that is what you do on January. January is named after Janus, which is, again, a Roman god. And the Roman god is depicted as looking forward and looking back as we look back on this year and we look forward to next year. And some of you may be interested in setting apart six days for lake learning. And it's at Lake Taupo. And if you want more details about it, then you could talk to Mr. Andrew Linton. It's a time you can grow. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the thing that we most need is not more knowledge of the Bible. We don't need to grow that more. We already know quite a lot. What we need to grow is our faith. And our faith comes from life-related Bible teaching. So you'll get plenty of that. If you want more details, please ask Andrew, and he'd be very happy, I am sure, to tell you about it. I was born at a very young age. And I was born dying. My parents, particularly my mother, was very religious and believed that her dying baby needed to be baptised or christened. And so at five weeks old, I was taken to the hospital in Palmerston North and my mother called the minister of her then church and asked that I be baptised. And she had the belief that if I wasn't baptised when I died, even though I was a baby, I would go to hell. So she called the minister of the church and he came and he christened me and apparently, according to what he said, I became an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven and a child of God. Can't remember it, but apparently that's what happened. But before he left, the, it was actually the baptism was in the corridor of the hospital. And as he left, the minister said to my mother, if he lives, bring him to the church and we'll do him properly. And my mother, who was a very sensitive soul, she was a wonderful woman, but very, very sensitive. And she didn't like to think that her little baby dying wasn't done properly. 
what does that mean? And it made her very unhappy about her church and about her faith. At the same time, a man came to our place and it was a Sunday afternoon and he left a book. And he came the next Sunday and he said to my mother, have you read the book? Oh, yes. Would you like me to send away for what's on the back of it? And my mother hadn't even opened it. You know, she was unsaved. I mean, it's a different life then. And she said, well, if you like. It turned out to be 40 weeks of Bible study. By the end of the 40 weeks, she was hungering for salvation. And a man by the name of Enoch Coppin came, set up a tent in Palmerston North, and my family was saved. Well, my father, my mother, my two older brothers. I was telling that on one occasion and a friend of mine said, but you missed out the most important part. And I said, what was that? He said, did you live? (laughs) Conversion is a very important part of life and we all have different conversion stories, those of us who have been called to the kingdom. I have in front of me the testimony of a woman, Dr. Rosalind um, Picard. When she was a young woman, she thought, I'm too intelligent to be a believer. Only weak people ever believe. And I don't need religion because I'm a strong woman. And so while she was quite young, she decided that she'd become an atheist. And she stayed in that position for quite a long time. On a particular occasion, she was asked to babysit for a couple and she did that. And before they left her, uh, they said, we'd like you to come to church. Would you like to come to church? She said, no, not for me, thank you. And they said, would you like to read your Bible? And she said, well, I could do that. And so she began and she read the book of Proverbs. And as she was reading Proverbs, she thought, this makes you think. It makes you think about life. What's life all about? I mean, what are we trying to achieve in our lives? And it wasn't long after that that She had another friend and the friend was a friend at university and she also invited her along to church and she went. And she said that it was quite difficult and I'm reading her words now. She felt the strange sense of being spoken to when she was reading the Bible and began wondering if if there might be a God She read through the entire Bible and then she read through the entire Bible a second time and she said, I don't want to believe in God, but I still felt a peculiar sense of love and presence that I couldn't ignore. She was invited to church. She went. By this time, she'd been reading her Bible and she accepted the Lord. And today... Rosalind Picard is a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and she's well known and respected in the world of academics. So her pathway was different from mine and yours, if you're a believer, has no doubt been different from mine as well. We all have different paths. I want to share with you something that came to me in my devotional reading on Monday morning, and it's from Acts chapter 20. Now, you know the name Paul. There are people in this congregation this morning, and your name is Paul. And you're opposite a college that's named after Paul, St. Paul's. 
very well known, and there are millions of people around the world, and they're named after this man, Paul. On this occasion, he comes to the end of what is called the third missionary expedition. He's left Athens and he's making his way to Jerusalem. And as he does go, he actually arrives at the western port of Miletus. And when he's there, he calls for the elders at Ephesus to come and meet him. And you've just been studying the letter that was written to the church of those elders and of the other believers, the Ephesian church. And so they come and they talk to Paul, or rather, Paul talks to them. And what we have in chapter 20, and we're not going to read all of it, but what we have in chapter 20 is Paul's longest recorded sermon. It's not his longest. I mean, as I was thinking about it, I thought it was quite interesting that prior to this happening, you find that he's at Troas and he celebrates the Lord's Supper. And it says... Paul was preaching to them, and since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. I won't be talking till midnight. The upstairs room where he met was lighted with many flickering lamps. As Paul spoke on and on, a young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy. Finally, he fell sound asleep and dropped three stories to his death below Paul went down, bent over him, took him into his arms. Don't worry, he said, he's alive. Then they went back upstairs and shared in the Lord's Supper and ate together. Paul continued talking to them until dawn. So that was a long message. That was much longer than the one that we have recorded later in the chapter. But we'll read together, and this is our text. So we're looking at Acts chapter 20, taking it from verse 17. When we landed at Miletus, he, Paul, sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus asking them to come and meet him. When they arrived, he declared, you know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, that is that area of Turkey, the Roman province of Asia, we still refer to Asia Minor, comes from Roman times. You know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I've done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I've endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I've had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus." And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in the city that in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault, for I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. You already know that the one known as St. Paul was very important in early church history and is still important through his writings. 
And I did a quick look at it during the week and I found that in my translation that I'm working from this morning, the New Living Translation, about one third of the New Testament is taken up about Paul or by Paul. That is about 74 pages, about a third of the New Testament. So he's a very important personage. And now he's making his way to Jerusalem. He gathers the elders from Ephesus and they trudge. It's not far away, but they walk from Ephesus to Miletus. He sees them and he talks to them about caring for God's people. Now, I just want to take two verses and two words. And my comments will revolve around these two words. And the first is believe. And the second is achieve. And they carry with them two challenges. And the first challenge is this. Do you believe? And as Paul says in verse 21, I have one message for the Jews and Greeks alike the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. One of the great preachers of the gospel died just relatively recently was a man by the name of Luis Palau. He became a great evangelist. In fact, he had a mission here in Hamilton a number of years ago and many people came to Christ as a result. He says, one day when I was a young man in Argentina, I stood on a street corner in the little town where we ended up planting our first church. I was standing among a handful of people in a flash of realisation, in this flash of realisation, I thought, this is what the Apostle Paul felt. And of course, not just every, every, not just Paul, but every itinerant evangelist from the beginning of Christianity. And he says, I stood there in the new town surrounded by people I'd never met, possibly for the first time they had ever been clearly presented with the good news. A few people listened and were converted. When before there had been no light, now there was a little spark. This is sacred business, I thought. I'm not just some nobody shouting John 3.16. I'm God's worker. And so there was always that feeling that he was a worker for God. And just now, as I think about it, for me, something that was very significant, a number of years, many years ago, I was only 65 at that point, uh, I was actually asked if I would be senior pastor of a Brethren Assembly in Australia. They employ 500 people in their ministries, and it was a great honour. At first, I turned down their invitation, but then I agreed. But Gwenda and I were brought up the front and the elders prayed for us and uh, commended us to the Lord. And when I sat with Gwenda in the front pews, it's as if God spoke to me and he said, actually, we sang a song together and it's got that line, captive to a holy calling. You've probably sung it. And as I sat there, I thought, The privilege has been mine ever since I was a little boy of being captive to a holy calling. And you ladies and gentlemen, if you are a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, then you have been captive to a holy calling and there's no greater privilege. And you're a greatly privileged woman. You're a greatly privileged man. 
and we all are as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he says, I have one message. And this one message is for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in the Lord Jesus. I'd like to ask you the question, how would you finish this statement? I have had one message for Greek, Jews and Greeks alike. What would your message be? The gospel, of course. Now, Paul here gives a summary of his message, and it's not exhaustive. He doesn't even talk here about the death and resurrection of Christ, but the people to whom he spoke obviously knew about it, and he just gives a brief summary. And there are three things he says. And the first thing is repent. I've had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin. Now, repent means to change your mind, and I'd like to ask you the question. I'm not asking the question whether you attend church, and I'm not asking the question whether you've been baptised. I'm asking you the question, has there ever been a time when you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And that involves repenting. Now, very often when we talk about repentance, we have the idea that it's something pretty onerous and something pretty horrible. It wasn't long ago that I was reading in Acts chapter 11. Again, the scenario. As you go through the book of Acts, you actually find that God is opening the kingdom of God to all kinds of people. The book of Acts is a book of transition. It explains a lot of things. When you come to the end of the Gospels, for example, the good news of Jesus is contained to Israel. When you get the other side of Acts, you find that the gospel is being preached all over the then known world. Before you come to Acts, you actually find that it's contained to the Jewish people. When you come to the, uh, the other side of Acts, you find that there are Gentiles too who believe. How did that happen? It's explained in the book of Acts. In chapter 2, for example, we find that Peter is opening, using the keys of the kingdom to open the kingdom to Jews. And then you come to chapter 8, and it's to Samaritans. When you come to chapters 10 and 11, you find that the gospel is open to Gentiles. That means the same people who are not Jews. And unless you're Jewish, you're a Gentile. I'm certainly a Gentile. And so you find that the gospel is now available to and open to Gentile people. Now, this was outrageous. As far as many of the believers were concerned, this was totally unacceptable. And so when Peter goes to Jerusalem, he explains to the folk there how it all happened. And there it says this. Now, they were objecting, remember? How can it be that Gentiles accept the gospel? And so Peter, so it's recorded in Acts, and Acts, of course, is written by Luke. When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. You see, if you are called upon to repent, then that's a privilege. Because it means to say that God is working in your life. 
And if you hear the gospel and you're not moved at all, it means that at that point of time, God may not be calling you. But if you're here this morning and you feel, I need to do something, I want my life to mean something, then the first step might be that you believe in Christ and that happens with repentance. It begins with repentance. And you turn your back on your old way where sin and lust and all kinds of things were dominating your thought. You say, I don't want to live that way anymore. And so Paul says, I preached to the Gentiles about repenting from sin. God is at work in you. If this morning, maybe you've never believed, you've never accepted Christ, you've never made that, that great decisive step, you can do it in the next 15 minutes. You can do it now. I can't do it for you. You do it for yourself. And it means it's a privilege because it means that you can live a new life now. You don't have to be held back by the past. Have you heard the name Simon Weisenthal? Simon Weisenthal had been imprisoned by the Nazis and he suffered all kinds of indignity in a Nazi concentration camp. Eventually, he had a campaign of trying to hunt out all these Nazis and bring them to justice, and he did it with dozens, if not more, of these people. But he was a prisoner of the Nazis, and any day his life could be taken from him. On one occasion, he was there on the parade ground doing whatever he was assigned to do, and he said that he got a request. A nurse came and got him and yanked him and took him into the hospital. He said he went into the hospital and he was introduced to this Nazi SS officer and he was swathed in yellow bandages. His face was totally covered in gauze and the man was dying. And he said, I can't die in peace unless I get something resolved. He said, I've been so bad. He had served on the Russian front and he told on one occasion, for example, that he and the people in his group, they went into a town and they gathered all the Jews and they put them into a two-story wooden building and set fire to the building. And as people jumped out of the top story, they machine gunned them down. And the officer said, one thing that I do remember was a little boy who jumped and he had dark hair and he had dark eyes and we mowed him down. And he said to Weisenthal, he said, unless I get some kind of feeling of forgiveness, I can't, I can't die. And he said, would you forgive me? Because you see, this man didn't know if there are any Jews left in the world and he had actually said to the nurse, are there any Jews left in the world? Bring one to me. I want to speak to him. And he said to the man, he actually spoke to Weisenthal for about two hours, holding him sometimes by the hand so he wouldn't go away. He said, will you forgive me? Some kind of forgiveness. And Weisenthal, he stood there silent for a moment and without saying a word, he walked away. Aren't you glad God didn't walk away from us? But rather he sent his son 
And as we've been reminded today, he sent his son so that we, through the grace of God, can have salvation. So it's a privilege to repent. And maybe this morning you'll make that decision. If you've never made that decision, you'll change your way of life with the aid of God. And the second thing that it says is, it's the privilege of receiving eternal life. As you go through the early scriptures, as the early exploits of the believers, you actually find they talk about eternal life. And I want you to think about that. Because you see, eternal life means that you have the possibility of living as long as God lives. You say, God will never die? Well, that's what eternal life means. You see, it doesn't matter. You may live to be an old man or an old woman, but that's nothing compared to eternity. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus says, you can live forever with Jesus and you'll be forever with the Lord. So you see, it is a privilege. It is not forced on you. No one can ever force it upon you, but you must make the decision. We all have to make that decision. So he says, I talked about repenting from sin and turning to God. In other words, change is possible. You can be different as you turn from your own way to God's way, and then you trust Christ and having faith in our Lord Jesus. You may know that the word gospel actually just means good news. Our Lord Jesus Christ came and he died and he rose again so that you and I could have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and be with the Lord forever. And that's good news. And it's good because it's true. And it's good because it saves. And it's good because it works. And maybe you say, how can I become a believer? I've been coming to church for a long time. How can I actually trust the Lord? Well, the first thing is you have to believe who he is. He's the Christ. He's the son of God. He came. You say, I believe that. And then you have to believe what he did. He came. He was killed. But he rose again and you have to make him your Lord. You say, I'm willing to do that. And I just ask you the question, when? If not now, when? If not here, where? So you find that Paul says, and you find that Paul talks about the fact that we must believe. So that's the first challenge. Do you believe? And the second challenge is, what will we achieve? So now we go to verse 24, and the apostle says, My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it's very easy to fritter away your life. And some of you now, you're in your teen years, and you feel that Life's never going to end. It's so big and so long. It doesn't take long to go by. And it's very possible to fritter away your life doing this and that and achieving nothing. It wasn't long ago I was preaching in a particular church, not in Hamilton, but in the North Island. And a man came to me. When I was actually doing the delivery, I noticed this person in the audience and he looked familiar. I didn't know his name, couldn't remember anything, but he looked familiar. And afterwards, he reminded me. 
he was part of that bigger youth group in the Manawatu, and so we sort of touched base at times, but that was it. But when he was talking to me, he teared up and he said, I've, I've spent 50 years in the wilderness, and you just come back. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, it's very easy to spend 50 years in the wilderness, and we will unless we make decisions that can change our lives. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what do I want to achieve with this life that the Lord has given me? Fritter it away or use it? The decision is ours. Now again, Paul says, my life is worth nothing to me unless... And I want you to take just a few seconds now and think, how would you fill this in? My life is worth nothing to me unless... Let's just take 10 seconds to think about that. What gives your life meaning? What would make your life worthwhile? Now, we're talking about Paul and the writings about Paul this morning. And Paul here tells us about the things that have made his life such an impact for God. And I'm going to talk about the fact that we're not Paul, but we have a life and we'll live as long as Paul. But he says, first of all, identify your aim. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. And we have to remember, ladies and gentlemen, that our biographies are being written today. How people will remind, remember us depends on what we do today and with the life that the God has given us, that God has given us now. And sometimes it takes sacrifice and sometimes it takes resolve. And here you find that the little Benjamite, the man who's just very short, according to tradition, he was very short, three cubits high, he reached the sky, was the saying about this man that made him about four foot six to five feet tall. But he said, I want my life to mean something for God. I don't want to fritter it away. I don't want it to be meaningless. I want to leave an impact upon someone's life. Our Lord Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, he said, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everything else, your father and your mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Paul says, nothing matters to me except to do the work that God has given me. Yes, even your own life, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. The same writer, writing to the church in Philippi, says, I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and to receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. And God is calling you to the prize. And maybe some of us here this morning need to make a decision, I'm going to change. I'm going to give myself totally to God. I'm not going to play footsie with the devil anymore. I'm not going to play hide and seek with the world anymore. I'm going to live for God from this moment on, so God help me. But it takes a decision.
You have to work out whether it's worth it. You have to work out whether God can use you. And of course, he can. You've probably heard the name Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was one of five young men whose lives were taken from them when they were trained to take, trying to take the gospel to an unreached tribe in Ecuador. And actually on the screen, you actually see a shot of his journal and in the journal underlined is this expression or statement that he made as he wrote his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You cannot keep your life forever, but you can gain eternal treasure forever, but sometimes it makes, requires a decision. So Paul says, identify your aim. And then he says, fulfill the work. And then he talks about the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. In the next slide, we have a number of statements from the book of the Acts. In the book of the Acts, you actually find the testimony of Paul, the conversion story of Paul told three times. In the first time, you find it in chapter 9, and there Paul is told the work that he's going to be given to do. And there you find that Paul has been accosted by Jesus. He's making his way on the Damascus road and he is blinded by the light. He's taken to the house of a man called Ananias and right on the first day of his conversion, he knows what his work is, to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. The second time in Acts that you actually find the testimony of Paul is when he gives it himself He's addressing the crowd in Jerusalem. He's been authorised to do so by the commander of the Roman regiment. And he says again about Ananias telling him that his work is to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear him speak. So you see, as you go through the three accounts, you find one complements the other. It, adds, it doesn't contradict it, but it just adds a bit to it. And the second is to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard and to go far away to the Gentiles. The last time is in Caesarea. And Paul now is going to make his way to Rome. He's been given a hard time. They want him to go to Jerusalem to be tried, but he says, no, here in Caesarea I ought to because it's a Roman court. And they're hassling him. Pillar the post and he says, I appeal, to, I appeal to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, he can do that. And from that moment on, he'll be heading off towards Rome and Caesar. But when he's talking to King Agrippa and his wife and to Festive, Festus and to other people, citizens of, the, of noble citizens, he says, I was appointed to be Jesus' servant and witness to tell people what you have seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future and to open the eyes of Gentiles. And I wonder if there's somebody here today and there was a time when you had a heart for God, but somehow 
right now you feel as though you're running on empty and you've lost that zeal and you've lost that drive and Christianity has become for you just something pretty boring and pretty dry, you can change. And you can fulfill the work that the Lord has given you to do. Paul, same person. In Colossians 4, he's talking to a person, to Archippus. He says, make sure you finish the work that you've been given to do. And here Paul says, I want to fulfill my work. So he says, first of all, I've identified my aim. He said, and I want to fulfill my work and I want to share my discovery, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Now, you say, but I'm not St. Paul and you're not nor am I. I mean, he was remarkable. He was a chosen vessel. He was one called out of due time. He was a person who was, well, he was amazing convert. He became a preacher and a missionary. I wrote a lot of the New Testament and a special person. We're not Paul. But the Lord has a work for us to do. If we've heard the good news and we see it as good, don't we want to share it? I mean, it changed your life. Don't you want it to change other people's life? I was rereading this week something from a sermon by a man called Harold Sinjin. There may still be one or two in this church who know the name. He came to New Zealand twice, and this was in the 1930s, before my time believe it or not. But anyway, he tells us, he was preaching in Cambridge. And in those days, of course, they didn't have modern recording devices. And so they had sonographers and they would take down every word and they'd type them out and make, put them into little books. And I have the privilege of having some of the sermons. And then he tells the story. He said, now remember Harold Sinjin was a banker and he was very prim and proper and he wore spats. Some of you will know what spats are. If you've seen Scrooge McDuck, he wears spats. You know, he was a very dapper gentleman. But he said he was walking along the platform, a train platform, and he was praying, which carriage should I go into? He said, I always do that. And he said, I felt this was the right place to go. So he went into this carriage, and there was only one other person there. And as he went into the carriage, he sort of tripped over the man and a long knife dropped out from under his overcoat. And Sinjin said, I knew immediately what was happening. This man was going to take his own life. And now I find this really interesting and hard to imagine, but this is how it was. He's this dapper businessman, this dapper bank uh, manager. He picked it up and he threw the knife out the window. The man blustered and he said, oh, I'll sue you for that. And Sinjin said, I'll pay for it. I don't mind paying for it. But there's one thing I want to do. I want to win you for Jesus Christ. So he sat down and the man told a story, began to cry. And he said, my wife has left me. My children want nothing to do with me. I have no job. I'm going to take my life. And Harold St. John said, well, I'm going to stay with you. And this, this part of the amazing story, 
And he actually went with the man to the dive where he was staying and he stayed with him for three days and he talked to him about Jesus. And the man accepted the Lord. And Sinjin took back to his wife a new man and took back to his children a new father. The years went by and Sinjin was telling that story and he noticed in the front row there was a man and he was very fidgety. He thought, oh, I was just one of these fidgety people, you know. But he thought afterwards, the man came to him and he said, was that man's name Oliver? He said, yes, it was. He said, he's my Bible class teacher. And he's always telling me about the man who saw him on the train, stayed with him and brought him to Christ. And Harold St. John said, I can't describe to you the joy that was mine in knowing that that man had come to Jesus Christ. You can know the joy. I mean, Christ has changed your life. Christ has given you meaning. You'd want to share him. Now you say, well, what can I do? Now after Paul is talking in Acts chapter, chapter 26, he says this, And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things they do. Sometimes people make a big debate about the epistle to James and it seems to say that you're saved by works and Paul who says, no, you're not saved by works. This is a good summary of what Paul says and it's exactly what James means. And that is, if you're truly a believer, you will prove that by your good deeds. Now, you see, you may not be a preacher and you may not write books and you may not do any of those things, but you can perform acts of kindness. And one thing I could guarantee is in the name of Christ, you do an act of kindness every day. You will begin to impact the lives of other people. And that is the work that's given to each believer. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And you can do it. That gives purpose to your life. It means your life becomes impactful. It gives meaning. Final slide before we pray is a statement by John Wesley, the founder of the Worldwide Methodist Church. And he said, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as you can and God will make you a powerful God. Do you believe? First challenge. And what will you achieve is the second challenge. God has spoken to us this morning. That's the purpose of his word and that's the purpose of this meeting. We remember him, but we also listen to him. And maybe you'd like to make a life, give your life again to the Lord. And in the next slide, we have a suggested prayer that if it expresses how you feel, you might like to pray, Lord, thank you for calling me to an eternity with Christ in heaven. Please help me to be thankful every day 
you know my heart, you know I want to be useful in this world, making Christ attractive by what I say and do. Please help me in this. Let's now respond to the call of the Spirit of God. Let's all pray silently for 20 seconds. Use your own words, express what you feel, but don't go out just doing nothing. Jesus said that when the word of God is spread, Satan comes like a bird in the air from the air and snatches away the seed. So now is the time to respond to the call, the whisper, the shout of God's spirit. Lord, you've heard every prayer and they are offered to you in the name of your Son. Amen. 